0: Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. Jesse Sidergo is the assistant professor of contextual ministry at Tyndale Seminary. He has a diverse breadth of experience in multiple disciplines of ministry in both the church and nonprofit sectors. He's the former director of Street Involved Services at the Young Street Mission Evergreen Center and continues to consult with churches in their engagement with poverty in the city. He brings to his work a conviction for interdisciplinary theological reflection that considers those most marginalized in society. His background in church planting in Boston, Massachusetts, has shaped his interests in missional lay leadership, community development, and urban poverty. This session was recorded at our city, Toronto, two
1: thousand twenty-three. Um, well, it's great to be with you all. Uh, thank you for having me here. I uh, I know EJ personally because we worked together at the Evergreen Center for Street Youth way back. Um, he was on his way out when I was coming in, so we worked at the I worked at the Out Street Mission for for eight years. I'll tell you a little bit about myself just to give you a little bit of context of who I am and where we're coming from, and uh, we'll go from here. I'm, a, I'm like a, I grew up in a charismatic church, so I walk around a lot, okay? So I don't know if this is gonna catch me <laughs> And just interestingly enough, I was just mentioning to them that uh, when my parents, uh, they immigrated here in their 20s, and then they began to meet with other Indonesian students, um, and they, they eventually uh, gathered with a bunch of Indonesians to start a church. Um, they started the church, and guess where they started it? They started it in this building. They literally rented this building. Uh, Christian Center, I don't really remember. I was very young, I think it's somewhere in the 80s where I think we were here in this place because they were doing ministry at New York University with the students. So this is very nice to kind of just come back over here and kind of share a little bit of a, a, a narrative and a bit of a story. Okay, welcome guys. Nice. A little bit of a story in that. So my name is um, my name is Jesse Sudirgo. So that's right, I'm Indonesian. Uh, Indonesian, born and raised here, born and raised in North York, and um, born and raised in North York. My actually the church that I grew up with, uh, grew up with, eventually moved back to this area uh, in the uh, on the other side on Keel, near Keel and Steels. So this is kind of the area that I kind of grew up in, not here particularly, but the church was that I was at over here. Um, I'm, a, I'm a professor, uh, I'm a professor at Tyndale, Tyndale Theological Seminary, and so at Tyndale um, I teach courses on urban ministry, I teach courses on, it's called Ministry in the Margins, um, I teach a course on uh, engaging in radical hospitality, so my whole focus is on justice, my whole focus is on compassion, uh, to on those on the outskirts, on the margins, and so that's the focus that we have up there, just building people up towards that. Before working at Tyndale, again, I was working at the Youngstreet Mission. Youngstreet Mission is a, is a big organization downtown that works with, particularly I work with homeless youth. I, I, I started working in Regent Park initially, in the Regent Park area. And then uh, we had a basketball program over there. And then after that, I ended up at Evergreen Center, which was like youth from all over the city. And uh, homeless youth, particularly. And those homeless youth that we would uh, meet with and relate with, kind of was for me like an education. Before I was at Evergreen Green uh, Youngstreet Mission, I, I was planting a church in Boston. And this church plant in Boston, for those four years of planting that church in Boston, was significant because I realized that like, the people that we were attracting were just a bunch of, just only the middle class, you know, the people who felt like, felt like us. And as soon as someone would come in from the margins, uh, someone who would, didn't fit the majority, you know, didn't fit the majority of the group, uh, would come into our church. I always felt like they were never connected into um, into the core, and so that was bothering me while I was doing this church plant in, in Boston. And for me, uh, my move to work in the nonprofit sector, with um, particularly with the homeless youth, came because it's not because like I had some like. Uh, like, I'm the urban ministry guy or whatnot. Like, I went, trust me, if I'm with the street involved youth, I'm not cool. <laughs> I'm not cool. I do not share a lot of the experiences that they've gone through. I'm not your guy for that, technically. But what I felt like was a calling to come into this because um, I felt like in ministry, uh, when you bump up into scriptures that have to do with Christ, like, there's no avoiding the fact that he was engaging with those. Um, on the margins. And in a way, for me, it became a discipleship issue. Like, it's, all, it's about discipleship, actually, that if you want to be like Christ, there's no way I'm going to read a piece of scripture of him engaging, like, you know, the Samaritan woman or the, the woman at the well there. And there's no way of me engaging that text without actually activating it in my life. I can understand it the- theologically. I can understand it, it biblically. But I felt like discipleship is incomplete if you do not actually... Activate and obey and do likewise like the way that Christ has done it. And so for me um, that kind of came to a, a halt and I ended up quitting a lot of the um, uh, the church planting world for a season and just coming to work at the, the Youngstreet Mission, which was more of an education for me than anything. Like I don't, maybe there's people I help. Like for me, it was me understanding pain, um, me understanding sorrow, me understanding um, how plans that you, you initiate don't always work out. Um, me understanding like my humanity and being able to help people. Um, and so we would meet at Evergreen, we'd have like 5,000 youth or four or 5,000 youth coming through our doors a year, right? So it was a drop-in center for everything Street Involved Youth, you had a health center, you had all these different services that came out of our, our place. And it was in that place that we would break up fights, there's in that kind of place where we would engage in so much sorrow and pain. That um, that's what I came out of it. So today, my talk, you know, when EJ told me to talk about this, I'm like, I don't know. I know I teach in a seminary and all that kind of stuff, but urban theology is a very big topic to go through in an hour. And I my hope is and by the way, can I just ask, when do we when do we end here? Is it Timothy uh, Timothy, when do we end? Just so I can. Uh so three forty five. Three forty five, okay. All right, so we're gonna have some engagement here, right? This is not just gonna be me saying, okay, this is what urban theology is and you go for it. I'm gonna talk particularly about Toronto, uh, the GTA, all right? So not everyone is here from the GTA perhaps, but it's focus on the GTA because I want us to use us as a case study, an example. So much about urban ministry, we get in books that are from the states usually, and a lot of that literature informs the way we do things. And today I kind of want to inform it differently by looking at the way in which Toronto, our urban landscape, has changed. So I, you know, I do three-hour lectures, so I'm trying to get everything in an hour. It's going to be uh, very difficult. But here's a starting uh, quote. This quote is by a guy named John McKay. He says this. He says that, um, gazing spectator-wise, okay, let me just set up this, this quote. He has this picture of a family on a balcony. This family is eating on their balcony and they're looking at uh, a city below, right? It's a bustling city below. And he paints this picture of a family here looking down at the streets below. And he says this he says, gazing spectator wise upon the streets beneath, or at the sunset or the stars beyond, the balcony that they're on, that balcony. That balcony thus conceived is a classical standpoint, and so the symbol of a perfect spectator from whom life and the universe are permanent objects of study and contemplation. Let me stop right there for a moment. So the balcony, he says, is a place where you can look at things from afar, and you can like, just kind of let it be static objects, meaning it's like immovable objects. They just are things that you can dissect, that you can look from afar, and, 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 and view it in a way that things don't move. And he says, in contrast, he describes the road. The road, the place where life is intensely lived, where thoughts have its birth in conflict and concern, and where choices are made and decisions are carried out. It is a place of action, of pilgrimage, where concern is never absent from the wearer's heart. I start with this quote because I think it's important to understand the difference between the balcony and the road. The balcony... When I look at the balcony perspective, it's kind of like when you're looking on YouTube or you're looking at all the, the issues in the world. And in a way, you can grow numb to it. Like even things like the war in Ukraine or whatnot. You can just look at it. It's like, oh, there's another war over there. Um, and they become, in a way, like we become cold to all those things. And, and we can, in, in academia, for example, you can treat it all as like immovable objects. that you can just kind of say, ah, this is a category here, and you can debate people about it because it's not impacting your life. There's no engagement with it. And he contrasts it with the road. And the road is a place where life is intensely lived. And what I love about this is that where thoughts are birthed in conflict and concern. So you can watch something online and be like, wow, that's really touching and engage with it. But the road is a place where you know, just like as you were mentioning. And when you're in jail, when you're in there, it's totally different than the construct or the, or the idea of engaging uh, people who are incarcerated. Like it's, it's a totally different experience. The things that you smell, the things that you touch, the things that you feel, I'm just imagining literally at Evergreen, the smell of wet socks is like distinct for me. Like I, I when I think about ministry on the streets, I think of wet socks. Every time it snows, gets icy, and it thaws, I always tell my kids, you know what's happening right now? Things are getting wet, you know? Any homeless person out there is getting drenched wet, and all I think about is socks. <laughs> I think about that, because that is where life, the road is where we actually can have, a, a tr- I, I believe, the truest place of concern. It's the place where the Good Samaritan comes and is compelled, which I don't think is too much forethought. is just engaged in it in a in a visceral reaction. It's a reaction that the person has, rather than this thoughtful analysis and then engagement, right? And so I think it's important that when we think about urban ministry, and we think about engaging the margins, in in a way, it has to be really birthed out of, whether it is lived experience, lived experience that you have yourself, it is experiences of the people that you are engaging with that actually, um, you can feel the pain. That's and very important things, because that's the storied life that we're engaging. So, the first one I want to make as we go in here is from this, um, this author, this author um, named Eric Jacobson, and uh, it's a book called The Space Between. And The Space Between, and this is where I'm introducing you to this idea of um, understanding the urban context, um, this author focuses on the importance of space and the importance of place. And the question that is raised here is that, uh, he raises this this point where he says that, we live in a culture that has become convinced that there's no longer any connection between geography, where one person lives, and the distinct qualities of that place, and our experience of community. Community is about relationships, we say, right? Like, oh, it doesn't matter, we can just have, uh, we can have it online, we can have our community online, it doesn't matter, what really matters is the relationship. And the idea in here that he's saying is that it becomes almost a truism, like it's a certainty. It's like, it's like in a way, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what you what you're coming from or whatnot. What matters is the relationship. And he goes on uh, to say for that. He says, he says, place in contrast to space is a specific context, a meaning-rich concept. Although many use the two worlds interchangeably, a fairly clean distinction can be made between them. Space is more abstract and indifferentiated than place. Place, by contrast, describes a realm where something significant has happened or is happening. Like for example, there's no place like home. I want you to think about Costco for a moment, or if you go to Walmart, or you go to a a franchise. I really dislike big box uh, stores, okay? Like, I feel like the life is taken out of a community where you just see a Dollarama and a Walmart, and a, what, like a shopper's drug mart. And that is the picture of the community. You see no mom and pop stores. You don't see any kind of like developed uh, things that were indigenously created whatnot. And you can go, the, the beauty about a Costco is that you can go to any Costco and you can kind of figure it out really quickly. You can look around and see you know, this is the, the cereal section. You even know what's going to be there. There's like no, hardly any variety. You go to the same Costco, you know what to expect. And in a way, what are the changing urban landscape that is creating right now in Toronto is this generic kind of picture of the city. Everything has, in a way, a storyless place that you can, They they do it on purpose, where you can go to any Costco and you can feel a familiarity. With that Costco because or or a Walmart or whatnot, you can feel the familiarity with it because they want it to be like a franchise. This is what it is wherever you go. My thesis today for you all, my main point that I want to get to you, is that there is there is a strong trajectory right now in the urban landscape to make everything generic and sterile. Alright? We're making everything, even in our churches, I would argue. Like, you know, we used to have like stained glass windows and Things that were on, like that, give a character of a church. But now, what do we do? We literally make church as generic as possible, with our walls being as plain, everything modular in our churches. Right? We say, okay, we can pick up and have church here or here, there. In a way, we come into a place, a culture that says that it doesn't really matter about what space is. It doesn't matter about the church building. The the famous line would be, you know, it's the church is a, a people, not a building. What I'm gonna say is that when you work in the urban landscape, place matters, right? The storied place, like for example, for me, in my home, I got a renovation recently that I like. I, I made some adjustments and I made things neat. Everything's painted. My kids are growing up, I have three kids, nine, seven, and three years old. And um, I, I literally had this reaction where i would be like, oh, my friend does this thing where they, uh, they go on the wall and they mark it up so that they can like the the height of it. And my my reaction was like, no, we just painted the walls. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to disrupt, I don't want to disrupt um, the the generic kind of sterile thing that I created. Because you know what, what if we we sell this home? You know, I, I think of my home as a commodity. I think of my home, in a way, as a product, rather than an inhabited place, a storied place, right? And I think this is a a great quote here. It says um, so the same author says this person discusses how modernity, the word the modern era, uh, has diminished the importance of place in contemporary life. In ancient and pre-modern cultures, place was a significant determiner of one's identity. A person typically was born, lived, and died in one particular place and was closely identified with that place. But then, with the universalizing impulse of modernity, typified in the scientific method, the particularities of place began to be perceived as a liability to the modernist. Okay, so that's a lot of lingo there, okay? But stick with me here for a moment. He's basically saying this, is that we want to universalize everything. We want to make everything as plain as possible because we're pragmatic people. We we treat everything as a utilitarian value. Like, I want to... I want to um, just use it and be able to replace it so easily, right? I want everything modular, right? But the idea is, is that this is a very new phenomenon, right? But then, when you take the idea of story and all this stuff out of it, then you take away the character. These are technically places um, that stories are lived in them, right? For example, when I went to a Costco once. Sorry, Costco is a part of my life a lot. I guess when you go to a, Co- a Costco one time, my daughter dropped her bunny, like a, a little lovey thing that she, she brings around. She dropped it, and we lost it, right? And then uh, and then I remember going out, and it was a big deal because she has to sleep with this bunny, okay? it's like a big <laughs> deal. And so we go out, and we drive back, and there's this whole story about us, like, trying to find it, and one, just, like, the whole story, <laughs> all, this, all the, the workers trying to find this bunny. We get the bunny. We have the story. But guess what? I have no idea which cost for that to place in. Right? But I have no idea which one it is. I have no idea because it became irrelevant to me. Right? But what's important is that we must understand that the landscape, the place in which we engage and remember is a very important place. Actually, in scripture, they always put an altar. They would create an altar. They put a bunch of rocks together to create an altar to remember a place. right? To be able to actually remember where we are coming from. And I think that you know, When it comes to urban theology, there's so many things we can go into, but what's important to understand is that, and the questions I want us to ask is, how, does, how has the built environment around you, the buildings, the streets, the traffic, the stores, the public places, impacted the way you facil- facilitate or plan for ministry? I just A question for you to think about, and maybe even we can discuss here. What is distinct about your neighborhood? Are those distinctions consequential for your life and ministry? How generic or particular is your ideal vision of place um, at, that, at the moment when you think about that? Because contextualization, to contextualize to a place, the word contextualize is like to adapt right, to a place, if you, have to, you have to understand the narrative and the story that you're stepping into. Okay? You need to understand that story that you're stepping into, and it's very easy for a Costco or a, a, a franchise to come into a place and to ignore all that was there before, you know? All the assets of the community, all the mom and pop stores that that Walmart is overtaking and, and, and decimating, for example, all of that that is there is significant. And before we, as ministers, or if you're doing a church plant or if you're engaging in urban ministry, when you step into a place, you have to know that there's a story you're stepping into. And in a way, the the questions that I have over here is that if you think that there is this pure version of ministry that can be transported to every single location or place, then we have to understand that contextualization requires for us to actually comprehend the story that we're stepping into. And so today I want to talk about all the changes that are happening to Toronto. Because Toronto right now is an evolving city that is moving so fast um, that I don't, I don't know if we're comprehending it. Like for, like first of all, like say Jaden Fitz in this area for a moment here, like um, back when versus now, totally different place. I would say, for example, you go to Branton. Branton is a completely transformed place than it was even 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? And the question is why, right? I don't know if you guys, um, Know anything about the urban history of Toronto. Let me just skip here for a second. I want to start over here. So anyone know the Don Mills Mills, uh, area? Don Mills, like Lawrence, okay? Don Mills, Lawrence, or Don Mills and uh, Eglinton area, okay? That area uh, over there was really considered the first suburb of Toronto, okay? It was a huge revolutionary project. So in the World War II... World War II just ended, and there was a big boom in development. Okay, in in this Toronto area, and so the urban core, all the business that was happening over there, they ended up like all the things, like all the all the subway, uh, all the train lines would come to Toronto. They would manufacture all the the, the um, what do you call it, the factories and all that kind of stuff, and then they would be able to transport it out from the downtown core. But over here, post World War to uh, development, there was an exodus of people from the city because of all the crime and all the things that was happening. And they created the Donald um, uh, suburb. And this suburb ended up being like the beginning of what we see later on in North York, what you end up seeing in Mississauga, what you end up seeing in Brampton. They started making these places, but guess what? Those suburbs were made for what? For people who were the middle class and who were made uh, to have cars, right? So I don't know if you, if you drive down 401, for example, you'll always see a group of five apartment buildings. Five apartment buildings together. That has ample parking, all that kind of stuff. But in those places, there ain't no, there, there's no, there is no social services, there is no easy access through transit. Everything is by car. So everything was made for the car in the suburbs. But then as you see the evolution of our time over here, Often, these ideas of these streets, for example, in the suburbs, are different from the, the, um, the streets downtown. It's not a grid pattern. It's actually, everything is uh, circular, everything is like you come into a neighborhood, you're in. Uh, if, if you're foreign and people don't know you, you look odd, because when you come in, you're not passing through. You got to come in, that's where you got to stay. In a, in a downtown, you can pass through on these grids, right? So it's a different even street pattern. But this is a whole new change, and it's particularly because of the invention of more people being mobile through cars. Okay. And so this is what ends up happening, and eventually there is a decline in church attendance down in the downtown core of Toronto. There's a decline in church membership and participation. There's churches start selling buildings, and then you start seeing a bunch of churches develop in uh, in the, in the suburb area. You would use Faith Sanctuary, right? Faith Sanctuary. Uh, when, when did you guys, uh, do you know, when they built the building? For example?
2: We've already
1: to Yeah, <laughs> There, or like say this church. These are the churches that were developed here during this time where people were moving and expanding to the suburbs. And this is something that you can see happen in so many different, um, different churches, particularly the Asian churches that I know, for example. All those Asian churches, they ended up going to the suburbs and became bigger churches than the ones downtown. And then, in the, in two, around 2005, 2007, they started coming up with this report. And this is a report done by U of T. And basically they, they did something called a three cities report, where they started to look at the, the demographic changes in Toronto and the fact that in Toronto, all the people who were in that uh, Toronto area started spreading out to different places all over. And they began to determine to see um, how the uh, socioeconomic, like the rich and the poor, where they were going. Okay? So this diagram over here, this three cities report, they said that this is the, the very blue are the people who are like really rich, the, the rich are the rich. Okay? And then the, the, middle, uh, the middle income people are yellow. Right? And then the very low income people are the dark red. And I thought this was a very illustrative picture. Because in the 1970s, the, yeah, look at that, Look at the middle class in the GTA is like, <laughs> is a predominant class here, right? And then you would notice here the downtown core where the subway line comes down over here. You see the, the poorest of the poor in the 1970s was all over here. And then the, the the less poor, in a way, was over here. And the rich were all over here in the Etobicoke in this area, okay? So let's see what happens next. Because when you see the subsequent pictures, which is yeah. radical, 1970 move to the 1980s where, look, 1980s is you actually literally see the movement towards Jane Finch area, for example, right? Back in the day over here, Jane the Finch area is just like complete middle class, right? Which tells you what the infrastructure is, what kind of storage, what kind of road patterns, all that stuff, that matter. 80s, you start to see it and eventually start to move much more there and start to move to Scarborough, okay? If some of you guys are not map people... I'll tell you. <laughs> this is the Scarborough area over here, Jaden Fitch, North York area, downtown, Etobicoke, until the point in 2015. In 2015, you tell me, I'll stop talking. What is your observation there? What is happening in 2015 based on the colors? What, what, is, what is your observation given subway lines, given all these different things? More poor people. Number one is more poor people. And it's like more like not like red red poor people, but like, like you know this kind of more poor number one. That means, and okay, keep going. They're going north. They all head north, east East and west north. Okay. Okay. What's the observation? They cut out the middle class. They cut out the middle class. (laughs) Question: Where do you think all the middle class is going in two thousand and fifteen? Where's the lake? (laughs) no, <laughs> the No no, no the blue. The blue is going to lake up. Uh, 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 Whitby. Mississauga, That's where they started to that Yeah. That's the, the, that's the move towards there, right? And then they said, that this is the projection. This is this was done, this study was done a little while ago. Um, but they said in 2025, which is like really close, this is the picture that they kind of sorry, it's kind of blurred here. This is the picture that they had like 10, 15 years ago when they. 10 years ago, I think, when they were doing this study. And this, is the, this is how they picture our society, right? And so let me ask you the question. What, is, what do you think is the difference in the story of Toronto, even? What then does that mean? What are the, let me ask you, what is the ministry implications based on this change in socioeconomic spread in Toronto? What does that mean, say, you can even talk about your ministry, for example. What is the implication of this, if any, to the way in which you do ministry?
2: You gotta go to Boston to make any hands uh, you know, ministry
1: to, to reach the people, mainly because it's harder to reach the rich, right? For me, it's harder to reach the rich. Okay. Sure. So by the way, the rich monopolize the subway line. Okay, just just keep that in mind, which is ironic. Yeah, go ahead, so uh, Just like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to. Um, the the poor wouldn't be able to come
2: to church, but like they don't, they, don't, they wouldn't worry about that, right? And. Sure, rich people,
1: they already have all everything they want, so they don't they don't bother coming to the church anymore. That's right. I mean, that's and that's literally the reality. I'm going to a church right now, who I'm helping out downtown, and they say likely all the people who are going to that church are like beginning to change drastically because all the rich are going to the uh, their cottages in the in the summer, and no one's going to church anymore in the summer, for example, which is an interesting thought. What does this mean then for? The way in which you, anything different that you would do in ministry as a result of this, I guess, depending where you are? Go ahead. So, you move to a poor
2: place, and then you would make um, make a church, or whatever. Sure. And you would help them, or whatever. Probably like a donation or
1: something. That's a great great idea. And for example, if 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 we do that, what's the difference between doing a ministry to, say, the homeless downtown, okay? Versus doing ministry to the poor in another area that's not densely populated like downtown. What is this, you know, and remember, just imagine those apartment buildings, five apartment buildings that you have to drive to that is kind of far from stores and grocery stores because they expect you to be able to drive. What else do you think? Easier access to the poor in the city. Yes, okay. You did, yes, before, yeah. But now, the whole downtown is, and so it changes the way in which you do ministry, right?
3: Any other thoughts, then? Though? Yeah. My question is, um, through that match itself, is that just showing people that are housed? Yes. <laughs>
1: people who actually registered their homes, so yes.
3: Yeah, so there was, I think, at the exact same time, we have to be careful of the fact that we aren't just utterly abandoning the city because everyone that has a house absolutely, lives there. It would potentially just mean that we have to augment how we go about it. Um, it's because I like, I know for myself personally, I live in Region Park, I uh, do move in. Based on this, I Will not be able to do move in uh, in Regent Park in two years time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it it will be what is referred to as unpatched. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think probably uh, for the church in Toronto, it's just a general revisioning and opening our eyes and. Dealing with the fact that how we're doing things right now and how we're looking at things right now may need to change.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, for example, one thing when you go to Markham, they say that the homeless youth in York Region are increasing like significantly in York Region, okay? And in Markham, in York Region, homelessness seems invisible because guess what? When you're homeless as a youth, for example, you're newly homeless. So you still have clothes, You're still wearing your Jordans, you're still wearing certain things that don't make you look a certain way. And so you come to Markham, where are the homeless? They're hanging around Markville Mall, for example, okay? You go to Vaughn, where are they? They are in Vaughn Mills, for example. That's where the homeless are, and they look very different, for example, than what you're gonna see downtown. So there's hidden homelessness that is spreading like crazy everywhere, you know that's that's making it in itself very invisible. And how then, for example, do you think about homeless ministry, for example, downtown, doing sandwich runs or whatnot in a place like that, versus doing homeless ministry, for example, in Markham or homeless ministry in Mississauga? What are the differences that you're going to make in being able to do that? So I think there's pragmatic things that we got to think about here when you're thinking about the changing landscape of the urban uh, in the uh, in the urban in, in the urban setting. And in a way, what this three cities report is really important for us to understand is that the church has a very specific role, a very uh, unique role in contributing to um, helping to create infrastructure in areas that don't have it. Okay? So when you go into the suburbs and you, there's a lack of social services, there's a lack of certain things, the question for me is like, how have you, by the way, let me ask you then, how have you seen the church functioning in the suburbs in meeting the needs of the poor, for example? as examples for you? Have you seen that happen maybe in your ministries that you guys are doing? Is there something that you find is a, a, an innovative way to, to engage?
4: Food, food banks are, are very um, popular right now and that is really helping to engage community
1: with the church, for people of the church. And you know that by the way, the food bank, all, all you need is to call second harvest or daily food bank, and they'll set up at your church. I don't know if you know that, but you just have to call them. They'll send you all the food. You just get the volunteers. If you can set up the infrastructure, they are desiring. You know why? Because if you have a center for uh, food banks, they want it actually in a local setting. They actually want it through a church, distributed so that there's more humanity, there's more smaller scale, it's less of a, again, like a Costco, it's less of an industry. But it's actually engaging like that. So number one. So yeah. Consent. Any other things that you guys know? How engaging the poor, and how have you seen it work out
3: in the suburbs? Youth programs. Youth programs. Okay. There's a lot of youth programs that Community services, counseling, um, care, um, uh,
1: first needs. And you see that working on the church. Church, Yeah, that? yeah I was going to say, um, I, mean, I mean, I've seen my church do this back-to-school, barbecue thing for the neighborhood. Yeah. And I think I'm asking you this stuff so that we can get a picture of what normally happens in a church. My, my question is for you is then, what is distinct about a church's place in the community than the nonprofit social side? Like what is the value add that you think the church brings that the rest of the world does not
4: when it's talking about the poor? Preaching Jesus Christ, that's the only difference. <laughs> it's the only difference. Well, okay. in One. terms of like any other social aspect that you're offering, to be honest, the food bank could do that but you don't have to be Christian. The other social organization could be doing the barbecue. You know, like in terms of overseeing what we offer the world that is different from Every other organization, it's the message of Christ. Now, could that be seen with our hands and feet in doing
1: things, particularly to meet those specific needs? Absolutely. Which becomes an expression of us preaching Christ of the gospel. And so, is there any difference in how it is offered? Sure. Like what? Yeah, it should be. So, what would that be? Like, what is distinct about the church's offering? In say the action. Say, I know there's the words, right? But this, is there any difference in the action that the church brings to the urban context within regards to delivering services?
5: I mean, from my experience working with the um, pastor here, he like tries to bring, pique the interest of what the youth are actually interested in. So, for example, the basketball program, something like a lot of kids don't, like, have somewhere to go and play basketball if they don't want to go to the community center or whatever then they come here to the church or they have the Brookview school um, program that we run and then from there he kind of preaches a word for like 10 minutes to hold their interest of who Jesus is and then yeah he just goes from
1: there. Alright, that's beautiful. Alright, is there any other things? I think meeting is
5: very crucial in terms of opening doors. Need meeting. Need needs. It opens uh, doors for for connectivity um, in the sense that sometimes we ask, why are you doing this for us? And it gives an opportunity there for for, uh, for ministry. And I think one of the areas in which I'm um, presently engaged has to do with the seniors. You know, and um, the isolation and all of that. And when we get in there to meet, need to to provide them information to help them, to, you know, enhance their lives. It opens that door. They, they're ready to hear more. They're ready to, to receive receive I need meeting. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm gonna kind of bring things. Uh, somewhat to close as we go in here with regards, to some thoughts that I have with regards to this, because I think this is at the heart of urban ministry, at the heart of engaging with the poor, in addition to what you guys have said, which is um, great. I think there's something significant about the gospel's impact in the way it changes our contribution to the social sector. Okay. The social sector is somewhere that I worked in, in a Christian organization, but when you look at all the delivery options right now, everything is about, uh, everything is about efficiency. Everything is about professional care. If you say to someone, okay, you're going through mental health issues, what do we say to people? Okay, I want you to see a therapist. I want you to see a counselor, which is good. That's a great thing to do. But the question then is, what is the the unique aspect of the church is that we're not in a way professionals who come to people with a, with a professional product. We are a community and we're, we have things like we say, Like, I'm a brother in Christ. Like, we're brothers in Christ. For me to say I'm a brother in Christ with someone indicates that there is, like, a connection that we have as a community of people that makes it deeper than a client-professional relationship. And if you look at all the studies that are happening right now in the social sector, there is an increase in professionalization of care. Okay? Everything now, if someone dies, go to a grief counselor. You know, and then suddenly you have there's an example on one of these books, someone coming with a casserole, um, or if it was if it was me, it'd be like rice and chicken. <laughs> and if you bring a casserole to the to the door of someone who just whose wife just passed away. You look in through the window, and you see them with a the counselor. You say, Ah, I don't I don't know if I'm equipped to deal with this grief. And suddenly, all the elements of community engagement that are that are all these like soft, intangible kind of stuff that are not objective, like the way in which... We're, all of that, in our society right now, is being seen as the fluff. The church body has something significant because we're a community of believers who are covenanting together, right? And engaging in intimate relationships that allow us to kind of not cross boundaries in a bad way, but do things that professionals in a way cannot. We're a body of Christ who can actually do that. And so the the key thing that is important is the the way that we can do this now that links to exactly what you're talking about with the gospel is that what doesn't happen in the world is this radical sacrificial giving that comes from a place where there is no requirement of a repayment. It's everything's called a quick pro which is like this idea of like, if I give to you, you give back to me, all right? If I'm gonna, everything has conditions when it comes to the social sector, right? But when it comes to that, like even like the most radical versions of the social sector, which is like the community development models where they would say, hey, you know, I'll only help people who wanna help themselves. Christians don't go with that concept. We, like the Lord did not work with us to say, go and help those who just wanna help yourself. If, if that was the philosophy of God, then we would all be doomed, right? <laughs> the beautiful thing that we have, and I know this might sound simple in the end, but this is what I am. I'm a simple guy. That In the end of the day, the idea of this vertical engagement between God and humanity, the, uh, the idea that God would give his unmerited favor to us and that we would be recipients of that uh, free grace that he has given to us, that, what I didn't realize is that that concept, if you make it horizontal, okay you make it instead of a vertical only God to us, but that we as the church would actually be able to do that horizontally to people, that's a radical thing. But that's not always the case because usually the way I did it originally when I was at Evergreen is like, thank you, God, for this unmerited favor. I would, I would do something to you and you would forgive me. Thank you, Lord. It doesn't matter how many times I would just keep coming to you and you give me and grant me this grace. Thank you so much for that. And then I go to the youth and says, hey, this is the conditions that you have to follow. And if you're not gonna follow them, then suddenly this relationship becomes a merit-based relationship. This is one where it's like, I do for you, you do for me, right? And in a way, that exchange is very normal for the world to work with. And I think there's positive things to that as well. But when I work with street-involved youth, who in like the book of Hosea, for example, where Hosea would come and continuously pursue despite the fact that thorn bushes would come in the way, we continue to pursue, unrelenting in that, would someone say recklessly coming and engaging, like the God's pursuit for us. When we're trying to deal with like such radical um, homelessness, and people who, guess what? A lot of people don't look like they want to help themselves. We need the hope of the church in those situations. Because the rest of the social sector, in a way, can work with the people who want to help themselves. But it's really actually... And I I believe there's a lot of good things that happen in the social sector. I love it. I work in it in a lot of ways. But the idea of having the impetus of this ability that legitimizes us to actually say, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I'm going to give this to you no matter what. Unmerited favor here because I have received that myself. And the thing that we have is a satisfaction in what God has done for us in our life. I think it's really reminiscent to that passage when it talks about the person who is, begs and pleads for forgiveness of his debt to his master and is granted forgiveness and is so thankful for that and then sees the person who owes him something as well, takes his neck and puts him out to the wall and says, you know, you must pay me back and they're begging for forgiveness themselves. And in this, in this action, coming back to the master saying, how could you not grant the same type of grace that was granted to us is something significant that I feel like the church um, has an opportunity to contribute into this urban landscape. Because when you have asymmetrical relationships, where you have um, situations in which there's relapse after relapse after relapse, you need a community that can withstand that amount of um, transgressions. Like, what community is going to exist out there that's going to be able to withstand constant, constant disappointment, constant brokenness? And I believe people can conjure up different ways to do it, and if they can do it, wonderful, do it. But the beautiful thing that we have is the gospel. And I think that in, in, in addition to what you're saying about the proclamation of the gospel is a demonstration of the gospel in action. You know that if we cannot just say to them the Lord has forgiven you and your sins are forgiven but that we can actually be activating that forgiveness in our own life in the way in which transgressions will happen so this allows us to be a church that we're offering like we're sending the offering plate around and someone steals from it or another person who I know who like the homeless come and they take the communion and they drink it all and they leave like when those situations happen we don't look at them and say hey what are you doing, like? This is—we're looking at them, saying, "You yeah, know, we're you. You know, <laughs> we're exactly like you. You know, there's no difference between me and you. In the way that I engage with God, I'm watching it play out with you. We can extend grace because God has given us that grace. And I think that's a simple kind of way to close today and kind of give us a, a picture of that. But I want to just ask again that question to you all—to to ask, how has theology or how has your engagement in scripture, change the way that you can be an agent in, uh, in the city? Like, what other distinctives do we have to be able to offer the world? And maybe you can add some thoughts or reflections on some of the things that were brought up here as well. But let me put that out there. Is there any thoughts to add to what it's saying just so we can have a little bit more of a
4: discussion? I would say like our, our own experiences of brokenness from the past. So like for me, like I struggled with porn when I was a teenager. God set me free, through my youth pastor First time I preached out of my church, I had 10 guys come up to me and get a service. And just share their own brokenness in terms of what they were struggling through. And so, you know, you get phone calls every other week saying, hey, pastor, I fell into sin. What they're waiting for is you're free to remodel that. Yeah. And you just extend grace yes. and be like, okay, so get back up, put yourself back up. Right. Let's figure out some healthy boundaries that mm-hmm. keeps you away from those. So I just, I think some of the things that each of us have gone through ourselves yeah. in those places of redemption mm-hmm. become places where we can help other people experience those same kind of redemption. as mm-hmm. we share our own story. Yeah, that's great. Would you say, urban theology,
2: um, you know, we talked, You were you mentioning what that, unmerited grace coming down. How we wanted to always answer it. So, um, the whole idea of uh, urban theology, for me to be able to give that unmerited grace, we talk about that. I receive. we an approach people horizontally in the urban city and so forth. How how can I do that? Like any examples of how I can. Translate that. Um, there was was another workshop that was that spoke about how to to share the gospel to these burning people. Yeah. Um, not necessarily by going there and speaking right away of the Trinity or anything, but I guess it's I guess it
1: with with love, right? Just giving love, right? Yeah, the language I use these days is like um, I think the idea of covenanting uh, covenanting with people a covenant kind of community where we're, we have a covenant between one another versus a, a contract. Um, a contract is something that is a different type of relationship where everything has its place and it's neat and tidy. Um, and like just imagine a lawyer kind of having a contract with someone type of thing, creating one. And then I think that what the, the biblical way of being able to see relationship is being understanding how to work in covenant with people. I think like say for example God's covenant with the Israelites. God's covenant with the Israelites allowed for a lot of infractions, okay, in a way. It it, it allowed for this ability to continue to be in a relationship, even though there was a lot of um, going away and running away and doing all these different things. This constant pursuit, it kind of gives a legitimacy for being able to be together still, even though things aren't neat. When I use, like, for example, in the relationship in, in Evergreen, when I engage with people it's like ah, sorry, you're barred. You know, you're you're barred from here because you had a fight in our drop-in center or whatever. You're you're barred over there. Suddenly, everything be- becomes a contract where it's like you're you're out. And then the idea though of being able to have a covenant relationship is being able to allow that person back in, right? And and have that open door back in. So I think that that's part of it. I think in the in the language that we're seeing in God and the way that He relates with us, I don't know why the Book of Hosea really speaks a lot to me. Um. With regards
2: just, to that, just a comment on what you just said. Um, I was hearing one of the other uh, pastors, uh, some of very positive, that talked about in a particular community. I think you touched on it, uh, a particular community, whether the men or are up there, you have to sort of know the needs of the people or who you're going in there to reach. I mean, yeah, they were saying, Food bank and all that, and yeah, there's need for that. Like, what are you going to grab something to eat? Yeah. But knowing maybe the community you're going to, um, what the main need there is? Is there a crime there? Is there an overwhelming drug sort of um, usage there? Um, or what or what? So, um, uh, urban theology would, would would you have to sort of learn learn stuff like that first about a community before you actually
1: able to um, reach them? Yeah, so that that's why I'm asking. In a way, the idea of the story, the story of the community and the neighborhood, in a way, you know, in understanding that, comprehending it, honoring it, withholding yourself from being the hero or the messianic figure in that place, I think in any kind of ministry that we're engaging with, the posture of listening uh, first is is paramount. And like we have a propensity to want to come into a neighborhood and try to change everything and be the solution all the time, but I think what validates it theologically is. Um, uh, which is the image of God, right? I think what we have as the church that is distinct as well, which I think every many people use inherent dignity or whatever in the language of the world. They can use it in certain ways, but we have a particular idea of the image of God implanted in people, whether they are believers or not. There's the image of God there before the fall, right? And I think that the asset-based community development model, where you come into a neighborhood and you don't just look at the negatives and the deficit, but you actually see the inherent dignity of the people We can substantiate that because we actually can see the image of God in people. You know, I had this, um, when I'm at Evergreen, like, again, there's so many layers of, uh, there's so many layers of, in a way, um, things that push people away from a lot of the youth that I was working with. It would would be certain things that are intimidating or certain actions that kind of, you know, imagine if you're in jail, having this idea of, like, intimidation and coming at people. All these facades that come up. And in a way, for us, like, for me to, and this is, and you can think about this person, whoever it is, think about the most complicated or uh, difficult person, and to try to see the image of God in that person is, like, the task. It's like, to really see, like, this is Jesus before us. It's literally when you look at Matthew, when it says, you know, whatever you do for the least of these, you do unto me. I think of the least of these in that passage. Actually, one of the people who's here today told me this one time. He's like, you know when you look at communion you see communion as the uh, a sacrament where the body and the blood of Jesus is symbolized in this bread and this wine right and in a way that passage in Matthew about the idea of seeing that whatever you do for the least of these you do unto me is very similar to a sacrament that when you engage the poor you are doing it as you are doing it unto God because what you see in the least of these is you're seeing Christ and the idea of a sacrament is that you see Christ in the body and the blood, right? And actually, when you see the poor, based on that passage, you can see that when you see the poor, you see Christ. <laughs> you see Christ actually in them. And my mentor at Evergreen always told me, every single youth that walks in there, you got you to gotta treat them as if you're treating Christ. And I've had people spit in my face. <laughs> I've had people who call me chink. I have made people who like, in, in many different situations, come at me with such hostility, and um, and I'm not saying I reacted properly in all those situations. <laughs> but in a way, what I have is a very deep uh, conviction that you know bumps up against my natural inclination to swear back at them or to do something. Like is to is to see that this is Christ walking through the door, you know, and actually engaging in this in this relationship. So, I mean, that's something that. Helps me a lot in, in that. Thanks for that question. Any other thoughts before we close? I
3: uh, okay, no, yeah. one. Um, the importance of an abiding presence. Um, that even when things aren't good, you're still there. Uh, because, especially as I use terminology that I don't necessarily care to use, but uh, with how the world operates when they go and get tough, it's like you find out that actually no one's really tough and they just get going um, but it's um, it's the significance of it it's like just using a little bit from my, my own piece itself moving into Regent Park and that I have a neighbor his name is Stephen, and I met him within like the first like month of being there, and then fast forward like six months, he's like, "Oh, you're still here." He's like, "Typically, people in yeah. my apartment don't last more than four months," awesome. um, and it's the whole element uh, for the long-term residents. They're still seeing you there. That it's like you may be. Giving the gospel message, and people may have not responded right away, uh, but you're still there. You're still doing the things for the community, um, and it's it's always a fun bit of tension because it's like it's like do we dust off the sand off of our feet and be like good things? Yeah, go to the next one. Uh, or uh, do we make Christ present? even in the midst of the the resistance, the difficulty. Um, So for me, it's abiding presence.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love
6: that. I love that thought. Um, What do you have something to say, Nico there? Jesus did lay out a good example for us in engaging the poor, uh, when he engaged with blind Bartimaeus. I imagine he was a rejected fellow who nobody wants to, in, to be close with Jesus. or was expecting that Jesus uh, would be trying to engage him, but Jesus did stop and, and use the example, or use the and say, leave the master alone. Send that same person, go call him. Mm-hmm. That person go back to him and say, we have good courage, the master is calling you. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's good that um, as Christians um, do engage um, the they. Charging the poor, the homeless, the blind. Uh, people who are just seen like nobody wants. Uh, Jesus stopped a big crowd of people and will find uh, that poor guy. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the downtown and you see what they look like. They're not pretty. <laughs> and so it'll be around like, not gonna get um, props often time for having these people associated with you, yeah. but it's just idea your goodness, love uh, from God that's going out that's causing you to engage them. I think we as Christians should um, practice that, and you're doing you're doing a good job. Yeah, yeah I think you, you get that idea of abiding presence in this when
1: you actually can see that you are a recipient of God God's uh, presence when you're with the core as well. I think there's a beauty being able to see the image of God in someone and receiving from them in a way that is, is genuine, not pandering, but really really genuine. Yes,
5: we in the back. Uh, okay, um, so just uh, highlighting one, two uh, things you said when you started, justice and compassion. Um, I think we have to, um, in order to engage with our city, Citizens, you know the young people. We have to have compassion because um, I'm, I'm talking from the experience working with young people. Yeah. Um, they they want sometimes they want to you know to uh, to uh, they want somebody to listen to their stories and either wanting uh, advice or just you know, to hear them, because I've had many young people, I mean I work with other team members, yeah. and they'll approach me, the way I approach them, with uh, compassion, because I feel, uh, not that I know what they're going to do, but I can feel yeah. the frustration. Some have been to jail, some, you know, even through, you know, things that they don't want to talk about unless they come at home. So being there for them and listening, is it's very important yeah. because Absolutely. I was able to share the gospel to them, and some of them actually they, they cannot change their, I mean, I cannot I mean, um, yeah. some of them, but they've changed their life yeah. because of what how I approach them and uh, minister to them. And they were able to open up with things that they'll tell anybody, even yeah. their parents tell So it's very so important that, that yeah. we, when you when you want to help somebody, just pretend you know what they're going through, so that fill them, uh, fill them with compassion, yeah. and then they'll open up, and that's how we can change the world. Because most times we assume and you know, social services like you say, it's you I support I mean I give you resources, yeah. you have to give back something in
6: in Yeah, yeah and I just to close,
1: you know, as we're as we're ending this right now, I just think that um, you know, one thing I always caution Christians in, in, in our engagement with as a church is We tend to think that the good works is like the bait, is the bait to the actual thing of the proclamation of the gospel. And I think that there's a danger in uh, being able to say, okay, I'm gonna do this work so that I can actually do the real thing, which is like the proclamation of the gospel. And there's always this question about that. What is the gospel and what is the the kingdom of God? Is it just the proclamation of it or is the demonstration as well? And we've had a lot of uh, issues theologically, with the idea of like a social gospel or something that just is only action in itself, and that is the proclamation in itself, or is it is it a mix? And I think that there's something significant that we should always analyze ourselves in the fact that the work in itself, there's something that God is doing in the midst of that action. And I think actually the taste of grace, uh, the taste of grace in action, and and people who can engage in infractions and us continuing to engage is part of the beginning process, I think, of people understanding that. And when you have abiding presence or when you have certain things that are you know countercultural in the fact that there is no that there is no full effect that is happening at that moment for you to just wait and be. You know, no transformation happening yet or whatnot, but you can still wait and be. And present with a person, I think is a significant way for us to kind of see that like God, I mean Jesus was with us for 30 years before he activated his ministry, right? There's a presence. There's a him being with us. That is a significant portion um, of his story. Um, the gospel is not only him dying and resurrected; it's him living a perfect life as well. And I think for us, sometimes we want to rush to the solution and to get to the to the to the main event. But much of us can be in that time of waiting and and being and having the patience and the longevity and the endurance and presence. That was
0: Jesse Sidergo from Tyndale University and Seminary. On our next episode, we're going to hear from Sath Arobalathan, who is speaking on the topic of mental health and implications for ministry. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and check back to hear the next episode. As always, you can go back in the archive and uh, look up past episodes and uh, there are some really fascinating stories uh, and guests uh, on this podcast from coast to coast. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. You're listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.